Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 31st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Pacific Bell prevailed in a discrimination suit filed by an injured worker. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Julia Leon versus Pacific Bell Telephone Company. Julia Leon began working as a union employee in 2001. In 2006, she filed a workers' compensation claim for a repetitive injury to both hands. Pacific Bell initially accommodated her work restrictions by a modified work schedule. But after three months, she exhausted the Family Medical Leave Act benefits. She was then categorized as a part-time employee with loss of salary and benefits if she did not return to work on a full-time basis. At her request, her doctor released her to return to work and the employer implemented requested ergonomic changes to her workstation. But by mid-October, Leon was placed on TD status again because of her repetitive sprain injury and because of anxiety and stress she was experiencing. Pacific Bell accommodated her by placing her on a company-initiated unpaid leave of absence, which lasted some 10 months. After that, Leon was again released to return to work with restrictions on use of a mouse and keyboard over a certain amount of time per day. But due to these restrictions, Pacific Bell determined that she could not perform the essential functions of her job with or without accommodation and that she was not qualified for other positions that did not require frequent use of a mouse and keyboard. Leon's employment was terminated in September 2007. Leon initiated a union grievance over her termination. The grievances were resolved in January 2008 by Pacific Bell reinstating her and her unpaid leave status and agreeing to conduct a 30-day priority job search. But ultimately, no company positions were identified for which Leon was qualified that did not involve frequent use of a mouse and keyboard. Leon concurrently requested a trial of voice-activated software to which Pacific Bell agreed. That trial was also not successful. But Pacific Bell agreed to allow Leon to return to work and participate in training sessions and to make more ergonomic changes to her workstation. Leon successfully returned to work for Pacific Bell as a full-time employee where she apparently remains. Nonetheless, she filed a disability lawsuit against Pacific Bell. Pacific Bell filed a motion for summary judgment and based upon the above facts, the trial court granted their motion and dismissed her case. Leon appealed, and the Court of Appeals sustained the dismissal in the unpublished case of Julia Leon versus Pacific Bell Telephone Company. The court concluded that the employer acted reasonably. The California Supreme Court declined to review the Olgavy case. This summer, the First District Court of Appeal rejected part of the en banc decision of the WCAB to some extent, but they left intact the ability to rebut the DFEC component of the rating formula. Specifically, the Court of Appeal rejected the mathematical algorithm devised by the WCAB to compute the DFEC adjustment 
by saying that nothing in SB 899 authorizes or compels the calculation of an alternative diminished earning capacity adjustment factor as the WCAB devised. When it devised this new methodology, the WCAB acted in excess of its authority. Thus, the formula devised by the WCAB in their unbanked Olgavy opinion can no longer be used. Nonetheless, the Court of Appeal agreed that the DFEC component of the rating formula can still be rebutted in other ways. However, the Court of Appeal did not provide any specific guidance on how this is to be done. Instead, they say they leave it to the WCAB in the first instance to prescribe the exact method for such a recalculation that factors the employee's anticipated diminished earning capacity into the data used by the RAND Institute. They remanded the case back to the WCAB for further proceedings. The city and county of San Francisco filed a petition for hearing before the California Supreme Court in a last-chance effort to revise the outcome in the Wanda Olgavy case. The Supreme Court issued an order denying the petition on October 26. Now that the petition for hearing filed in the Supreme Court has been denied, the Court of Appeal decision is final. In the months ahead, it will be determined how the ruling will be applied in a case-by-case basis. And now our fraud report. A repeat of the statewide sting by the Contractor State License Board nabbed more illegal contractors. Bidding home improvement projects costing more than $500 without a contracting license resulted in 19 people getting citations to appear in court. The license board held contractor stings in eight cities, catching 113 people statewide. The projects included landscaping, tree trimming, painting, tiling, and cabinetry. State investigators checked local bulletin boards, some free newspapers, and Craigslist for people advertising to do contracting work. The investigators called the people with the ads and had them go to a house used for the sting operation. When unlicensed contractors showed up and committed to the bids, they were cited. Also, a number of the people were cited for false advertising by using cards that indicated they were contractors when in fact they were not. Both unlicensed and licensed contractors are required by law to provide workers' comp insurance, and some citations were issued for failure to carry comp insurance. And in regulatory news, the DWC gave everyone notice that they have tightened up the QME process after the Maselli case. The WCAB issued an in-bank decision in Maselli versus Pitco Foods on September 27th. The decision concerns the number of days the parties in a represented case must wait after a proposal for an agreed medical evaluator is mailed before requesting a QME panel from the medical unit. The WCAB held that when the first written AME proposal is mailed, the period for seeking agreement on an AME is extended five calendar days if the physical address of the party being served is within California. And the day counting starts with the day after the date of the first written proposal for an AME and includes the last day. Effective immediately, the medical unit will only issue panels that comply with the Maselli case. And what happens to panels incorrectly issued before the Maselli case? Well, if a panel request is found by the medical unit to have been filed prematurely, 
Their request will not be filled and the parties will be notified. In cases where a panel was issued but no QME evaluation was conducted, the medical unit will issue a new panel. And in cases where a QME evaluation has already been conducted by a doctor selected from a premature panel, the parties should notify and then seek a court order from a workers' compensation judge. The DWC has made some suggestions on how to deal with panel requests in the future. Although the Labor Code may not explicitly require service of the AME proposal letter, to avoid doubt as to when the first written proposal was made, it would be wise to use a proof-of-service declaration. The DWC has confirmed that the minimum and maximum temporary total disability rates will increase on January 1st. The minimum TTD rate will increase to $151.57 and the maximum rate will increase to $1,010.50 per week. The Labor Code requires the rate for TTD to be increased by an amount equal to the percentage increase in the State Average Weekly Wage, or SAWW, as compared to the prior year. The SAWW increased from $979.90 to $1,003.50. Workers with date of injury on or after January 1, 2003, who are receiving life pensions or permanent total disability benefits, are also entitled to have their weekly payment adjusted based on the SAWW increase. The Insurance Journal says that interpreter costs have become a point of contention in California. In an en banc decision this year, the WCAB ruled that employers need to provide reasonably required interpreter services for injured workers during medical treatment appointments. Interpreters are required to prove that their services were necessary before receiving payment. Major insurers have petitioned the WCAB to regulate payment liens for interpreter services in the state. They have argued in court filings that the market rate for interpreter services is unclear, that interpreters may not be needed in all types of medical appointments, such as for some massage therapy sessions, and that a fee schedule should be created for interpretation in workers' comp cases. The president of the California Workers' Compensation Interpreters Association said the dispute over interpretation costs comes at a time when there is a growing need for language services in the state, particularly in Southern California. Interpreter costs are a hot-button issue in states such as California, which has a large population of immigrant laborers. And in medical news, a new federal GAO study finds rampant prescription drug abuse nationwide. Prescription drug abuse by elderly and disabled beneficiaries of Medicare costs the U.S. program nearly $150 million in 2008. According to a government report, some of these patients went to at least five doctors to get multiple prescriptions of drugs that are often abused. In all, 170,000 people enrolled in the Medicare Part D prescription drug program went doctor shopping for drugs such as oxycodone and hydrocodone, according to the study. These abusers are 1.8% of the patients who had prescriptions for these commonly abused drugs. 
In one example, one individual received prescriptions from 87 different doctors during the year. The controls put in place so far have not curbed the abuses. CMS notified doctors about patients who could be abusing prescription drugs, but these notices did not seem to have any effect. The CMS Fraud Division is receiving a growing number of complaints about this issue. The GAO and others called on CMS to take more stringent steps to prevent Medicare fraud, such as limiting patients to one doctor and one pharmacy to better monitor abuse. However, some patients with cancer, multiple sclerosis, or other diseases with complex treatments, or those without primary care physicians may need to see several doctors. There has to be a balance between stopping behavior that's clearly fraudulent and illegal and ensuring that beneficiaries have access to medication. Drug companies have long kept secret details of the payments they make to doctors and other health professionals for promoting their drugs. But, anticipating the start of new federal regulations, 12 drug companies have begun publicizing the information, also because of some legal settlements requiring them to do so. ProPublica put all of these disclosures into a database so patients can search for their doctor. The ProPublica's Dollars for Docs database now includes more than $760 million in payments from 12 pharmaceutical companies to doctors. And some of this data is puzzling. 80% of the 200,000 doctors included in its 2010 payments made by one company were listed only because they had received one or more meals paid for by the drug company. For example, a West Hollywood, California doctor reportedly received over $3,000 worth of meals from Pfizer in 2010 and over $1,000 worth in the first half of 2011. He did not perform any services for them, according to the company's report. In California, drug companies paid roughly $89 million to doctors overall. While doctors serve as a critical advisor for corporate research and innovation, there is an escalating concern that industry influence can go too far. New federal rules will soon kick in to make how much corporations are paying doctors and for what services clearer. At the moment, it's up to each company or the individual doctor to decide what to disclose. But by March 2013, this will change. Then, all pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers will have to disclose their payments to doctors and other healthcare professionals, such as pharmacists and nurses, and make them publicly available. And if payments by drug makers to doctors are not enough, Orthopedic surgeons have received hundreds of millions of dollars from joint implant manufacturers in recent years. A new study published in the Archives of Internal Medicine says that in 2007, five device makers said that they had paid surgeons almost $200 million, with 43 payments exceeding $1 million each. Those financial ties represent anything from consulting fees to royalties to research support. Some argue they are necessary to drive medical innovations, but others fear they could end up harming patients as well. Doctors getting industry money could be quicker to use implants from the companies paying them, for instance, or downplay the side effects of those products in their research.
The published findings are based on data released after the five largest orthopedic implant makers, Biomed Orthopedics, Depoy Orthopedics, Smith & Nephew, Stryker Orthopedics, and Zimmer settled a kickback probe with the U.S. Department of Justice in 2007. That year, the companies made more than 1,000 physician payments. In 2008, after the companies found out they had to disclose those relationships, the number fell by almost half. But the three companies that continued to voluntarily disclose payments increased the amount of money they paid doctors by more than 40% between 2008 and 2010. According to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act passed last year, Manufacturers must report payments of more than $10 by 2013, and this information will be freely available online. The American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, or ACOM, and the International Association of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissions directed an open letter to workers' compensation officials to express deep concern over the growing issue of prescription opioid abuse in the United States. The letter says that the abuse of prescription opioids has become a grave personal risk to injured workers, a disruptive force in the lives of those close to claimants harmed by abuse, and a cost concern to other stakeholders in the United States workers' comp system. While they are not opposed to the safe and controlled use of prescription drugs for pain relief, they are concerned about the clear upward trends in the incidence of prescription opioid abuse. The organizations say that the signs of an epidemic of prescription opioid abuse abound both within and outside the workers' comp system. In the United States, deaths from unintentional drug overdoses almost equal deaths from motor vehicle accidents, and the majority of these deaths are due to prescribed opioids. Recent research by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute and other prominent organizations like the National Council on Compensation Insurance clearly shows very inconsistent patterns of use of prescription medication across states. Many different strategies have been employed by workers' comp agencies to address this issue. One tool is to effectively deploy a treatment guideline with pain management recommendations. This was the California approach when the chronic pain guideline was adopted a few years ago. Another important element of chronic opioid management is a prescription drug monitoring program. Pre-screening for abuse potential and drug screening are also key elements of chronic opioid management. Finally, the authors of the open letter say that judges, attorneys, patients, and family members need to be aware of what constitutes proper management of prescription medications. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.